So today we are in week five of our summer sermon series called You Asked For It, right? So this is a sermon series where we take uh, suggestions and questions from the congregation and we try to answer them in a sermon. Uh, It usually has some pretty interesting questions, like last week, maybe you caught it or maybe you didn't, but the question was, uh, I don't want to misquote it, Uh, do our family members who have passed still speak to us? And Chase's sermon was, Grandma, is that you? Like, that was the sermon he preached. And it was a really great time. I encourage you to go check it out if you, uh, if you want to. Uh, today, our question is not really a question. It's more of a reminder to bring up a certain topic, right? Uh, we have a repeat question that's come up in previous years, uh, which is a request to preach about singleness. Right, so this isn't a direct question, and we really didn't get a sense from the Holy Spirit about a specific question that we needed to answer, but maybe that's the point for today, as you'll see when we go on. Uh, our question came from Rachel Took, who I won't make stand up because she won't want that, uh, but Rachel brought the question up, and I asked her you know, what, what she was thinking about it, and um, I think it's necessary to quote her here. She said she brought the question up because... If I don't ask it, it won't come up during the rest of the year. And it's a big part of my life, so I want to hear about it. And that convicted me. It convicted me that a big part of someone's life just doesn't come up at church, doesn't come up in the sermon time on Sunday morning in a whole year. That seems backwards. It seems like we should be speaking and engaging with all parts of people's lives throughout the year. Not that anyone's keeping track or making tallies, but if someone feels like they haven't been represented in a whole year, what are we doing, right? What are we doing? So, ultimately, our culture, and more specifically our Christian culture, is obsessed with marriage, and I think that's a problem. Okay, our sermon today is called The Bridesmaid of Christ, and our main passage is a few verses throughout 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So let me start off by saying I am married. I know I'm looking in on this conversation, so I don't claim to be an expert, uh, but I've tried hard to put some edifying words together for this sermon today. So if I misspeak, please forgive me. And I'm not alone in my effort to make space for this uh, experience that many people in our churches have. Unison isn't as bad as some places, right? Living life plugged into the church is far more than what happens on Sunday mornings. You may remember if you've been around for a while or now you know, uh, Unison had a singles ministry that was meeting once or twice a month for a while. It's been on pause now, but it was a specific like affinity group for people to be with each other, right? Lately, it's been on pause. And speaking back to Sundays, uh, you may know that I had the privilege of speaking about singleness in this sermon series last year, right? So that was early August, pretty much a year ago, when we had a, top, uh, a sermon that dire- addressed this topic directly. That's a problem, right? Um, and if you're really listening in many of the sermons where it seems like marriage is bound to come up, right, you will not hear as much marriage talk as you might in some other places. I think our teaching team is really great at widening out a message so that everyone benefits. Right? Chase regularly when he preaches, like let's say on Father's Day this year, he said, Hey, I'm speaking, I was thinking about fathers and or about men when I wrote this, but women don't just check out, right? 
He doesn't want people to just check out. I'm not preaching to just one slice of the congregation today. I want to preach to all of us today. Right, so like I said, the problem is very clear to me. Our culture elevates marriage or married status above singleness. We act like it's a person's greatest achievement when they get married. Uh, Or many of us grew up thinking that marriage was our biggest goal in life. And here, purity culture strikes again, right? From my explicit, my specific situation, I remember what they told me when I was 13 and 14, right? They said, keep all your desires from taking you over and wait until marriage, right? Then it'll be a free-for-all. An entire section, an entire, that wasn't supposed to be a joke, an entire section of my being, no, a whole section of my being was relegated to a later part of my life. They said, this isn't important right now, Maybe they didn't want to do the work to to teach me and guide me in a way that discipled me in a wholesome way so that I had a better relationship with with myself and then with my spouse once I did find a spouse, right? No teaching, uh, there was no teaching about embodying self-control or selfless love or anything other than pure morality. That's all I got. But here's the problem, right? Not everyone is going to find a spouse someday. And that's got to be okay, right? Uh, two big section or two big like differences uh, in among the people who are not married exist, right? There's people who are not married by choice and people who are not married not by choice, right? So this one might be called celibate lifestyle, or maybe it's not that serious. And this one, there can be 155 different reasons why a person finds themselves single. Maybe they were married and they're not anymore, or maybe they didn't make that marriage step, or whatever there is. Uh, there's two big groups here, okay? And I'll kind of go back and forth in, in talking about them. Um, so uh, let's look at the scriptures uh, to see a possible helpful way forward, right? And we'll start with the many marriage metaphors throughout scripture. Okay, we'll kind of talk about those for a little bit, and then we'll move into our passage uh, for today. All right, so we see imagery involving marriage all throughout Scripture. Uh, marriage is made up, is first made up very early on in Genesis, and we can't forget that God made marriage for humans, not humans for marriage. Right? Marriage isn't an ideal that we as humans serve. Right? Marriage serves humans. Okay, that's how God made it. He made it that way. He made the people before he made the relationship or the covenant, right? Uh, Ultimately, there's a lot of places through the Old Testament we could focus on, and we won't today. But we'll look at the New New Testament and its consistent uh, identification of the church as the bride of Christ, right? This is conveyed through several biblical uh, passages, and I have them listed here. John 3, verse 29, Romans 7, verse 4, Ephesians 5, 2 Corinthians 11, Matthew 22, Matthew 25, Revelation 19, 1 Corinthians 7. I'm not going to say them again because you can Google that, right? There's a metaphor throughout the New Testament that says the church is the bride of Christ. Christ is the bridegroom of the church, right? So there's this covenantal relationship idea between them. And ultimately... That's what it, it, it's trying to point to what the relationship means. It's not trying to say that marriage is some sort of elevated status over against singleness. Okay? Inspired scripture uses uh, that metaphor to talk about our relationship with Christ and his care for us and our devotion to him. 
but it's to point to the covenantal aspect of marriage, right? It's not to, not to point explicitly to this as, a, as an elevated status. It's just a picture. So with that, we can come to our main passage for today. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. There's a lot of verses through here, but really we'll highlight the ones that uh, have to do with our specific topic. So this is the most commonly talked about passage on this subject, right? Paul is giving both his own advice and telling the Corinthian church about what, or what God says about things pertaining to singleness and marriage. Like the rest of 1 Corinthians, right? If you've read 1 Corinthians even once, you might know, a lot of it is, hey, you think this? That's why that's nonsense. And then he goes through and teaches them something, uh, bringing them up to speed, really, with, with the rest of what God says uh, throughout, uh, throughout their uh, scriptures. And this one's no different, right? The, the Corinthian church had had a correspondence with Paul in some way, and they wrote a letter, and they said this, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's the first verse of 1 Corinthians 7. So Paul, when he said, now, about matters you wrote about, when you said this, quote, right, the Corinthian church thinks this, it seems like some of them among them uh, think that they can be super pure and super uh, set apart before God, and it's called asceticism, right? They've, they think that they have to stop having sexual relations altogether to be pure before God. And Paul actually says, Mm-mm, don't do that. You know, that's, that's not what this is, right? There's no precedent for quitting sexual relations just because you're following Christ, especially if you're in marriage. And we'll get to that later. I know that came out funny. Uh, there's a few versions of the Bible that actually misquote this verse, and they think it says, it is good for a man not to marry. Like, it's just simple like that. That's, that's a bad translation, and really there's only a few Bibles that, that do make that choice. This is why it's important to have multiple translations nearby whenever you're reading Scripture, right? I have to keep track here. All right, Paul says, you know, now, about that matter when you said it is not good for man to have sexual relations with a woman. Then he gives the godly instruction for the people involving this concern. He says, no, if you're married, this is the next few verses, no, if you're married, you're supposed to fulfill your marriage duty. And again, we're not talking about that today. Uh, but all of this is to say, if you saw that one verse out of context and you happen to be in one of the translations that is really unhelpful there, you might be really confused. You might think, oh, singleness is actually the one that God elevates. When actually neither of those is going on. Neither is being elevated over the other. Okay? Then we get to this second section here in verses 6 and 7, and I'll read it now. I say this as a concession, not as a, as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Paul is not married, right? The one who wrote half of the New Testament, single. Either by choice or not by choice. Some people think maybe he was married later on in life, I don't know for sure, but ultimately he was single at this point, and it was a gift to be single, right? He saw it as a gift, the gift of celibacy, we might say. Paul says, this is a concession. I give this to you because we know that you can't be perfect, right? So if you're reading the verses before it, you are really aware that humans are fallen, humans have sinned, humans don't act in obedience to God at all times, so he says, I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, 
Paul is saying, this is not my command to you, but I think it might be better if you were this way. And we'll get to his reasons why as we move on. Right, this separates, this is an, a time when we separate the, the unchosen or unwilling singleness from the chosen slash willing singleness, right? And we'll talk more about the unchosen singleness at, toward the end too. Next, we can move on to the next uh, section of verses, and it's verses 25 through 35. So I'll read each section and kind of uh, talk about them as we go. I don't have slides for it because it's quite long, but here it is. Verse 25, now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. First, I wanted to address just the usage of virgin there. It means a young woman of marrying age. It doesn't mean anything explicit about virginity. and It's a cultural thing anyway. So the point is that if a young woman wants to be married, she's not committing sin, but they're going through some persecution right now. Right? Paul says, because of the present crisis, though he has no command, he has no instruction, nothing that is definitely God's best, Right? There's not one prescribed way to be. Uh, he says, I want to spare your pain. I want to spare your stress. So I think it's easier for people not to be married. And ultimately, that's as much as he says about it. Right? That's as much as he says about what to do and when to do it and how to do it. We can move to verse 29 through 31. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. So it's impossible to read scripture and not see, or it's impossible to read the later New Testament and not see that everyone thought Jesus was coming back tonight, Right? They all thought Jesus was going to be there that minute, and he, he didn't. He hasn't come back yet. We're still waiting for him, right? That's a central Christian uh, belief. We're waiting for Christ to come back to make all things right again. But Paul's saying, in light of their persecution, in light of that Jesus is coming back real soon, maybe there's better things to focus on if you, need to not, if you don't need to be married, Right? Ultimately, he's speaking to his culture, he's speaking to, to this church, and he's saying, hey, maybe this is the best. And again, it's not a command. He says to live as if Christ is coming back, like always, like we all are supposed to do all the time, right? With that, we can move to verse 32. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman of virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. When you made a new commitment, a new covenant with a person, you're under other expectations, right? 
when you don't have a covenant with another person, when you're single by choice or not, you don't have a commitment to living life with them, doing, doing relationship in this way that, that we've come to see culturally is marriage. That can change throughout all kinds of cultures, right? We just have our current one. But ultimately, he's, he's kind of pointing to the facts of life, and he's saying, uh, if you have someone to focus on, you're a little less focused on the Lord. So if you want to serve the Lord and you want it to be easy, stay single if you can. Again, not a command. But neither one of these is lifted above the other. Okay, that's, I need you to hear that. Neither one of these is elevated above the other. If this is Paul's perspective on singleness, we have some things to consider, right? We have an unconscious bias against any status other than happily married. Much of our church staff and leadership is married. Not all of us, but most of us here at Unison are married. Something like 90% of the pastors in our denomination are married. 90%, right? So something like 10% of the people are single for some reason. How many of those are single by choice? Who even knows? I don't know if that exists, right? But the point is, so many of us make a majority of being married that we can push out, we can, we can not look at the experiences of single people in our community, in our congregation, and it's, it's not that bad. I don't want to do that anymore, right? I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> this this uh, super majority of people being married, it may communicate a fear of single people being in leadership, or they may get distracted, or maybe they're tempted, or what's going to happen when they they get a spouse. Are they going to give up caring for the church? Like, all of these things should apply to married people as well, okay? Everybody can fall into sin. Everybody is tempted in similar ways, right? That's, that's actually one way we're a lot like Christ, right? Single people are tempted, you know, ooh, there's, there's another person around. Well, we're a lot like Christ as a married person because I get tempted in the same way. And that's where the likeness with Christ stops because I didn't sin, or I didn't not sin. Hang on. I didn't not sin the way Christ not sinned, right? Uh, we can be ignorant of the experiences of single people among our congregation, right? What happens when a single person walks into a church alone, into this church alone? Do they get a bunch of people looking at them or checking for the rest of their family or kind of looking at them sideways, trying to see their hands, see if they can see a ring, Right? I know someone who's not even single, right, married for like 30 years. Her husband just didn't like going to church, that church, and she would show up at church with her kids, and she would get sideways looks like, what do you, you don't have your life put together, what the heck? Like, isn't this a problem we always have where, where Christians who are good think that they're part of the museum instead of Christians who are loving thinking they're hospital staff, Right? Being hospital staff instead of museum artifacts, you're much more lively. You're actually obeying Christ. You're not just looking good and, and you know, in your nice new clothes with your, you know, two parents and two kids and the white picket fence back home, right? We can be ignorant of those experiences and they just, they just don't come up because we ignore them, right? Do we cut ministry events short because we have to get home to the wife? I'm actually guilty of this exact sentiment. Um, last week, we were at Mo Labs and having a good old time. And granted, we went over by a good bit. But ultimately, the reason for ending it was 
all right, got to get home, you know, like, and, and I did have to get home, help uh, put the baby down and spend the evening together, right? But if that's our reasoning for cutting an event short, what does that communicate about people who aren't married, who don't have a family to rush home to, right? We can't expect more out of them, more flexibility out of them, unless they're willing to give that flexibility. And I understand that this is about creating proper boundaries and sticking to them and being careful. But ultimately, if we put our boundary in the wrong place, we need to be willing to address it and re, you know, move it if we need to so that it's in the right place. Sometimes churches don't even have programming or events for single people. Right? We have family events and outings that it's really easy to take the kids to and we have single people to volunteer for you know, running the games or running the popcorn tent. It's not for them, right? All the time we put muzzles on our, on our own mouths and we say, we don't have anything to say to you, single Christian. Because we focus so much more on the ideal family or on the ideal you know, couple coming back from the brink. Very good story. Want that to happen. I want a couple to come back from the brink. And there's more people in our church and their experiences matter too, Okay. So, ultimately, I want to say this. Single Christian, you are welcome here. You are loved here. If you're here, we believe that God has placed you here. And you are desperately needed. Desperately needed. I need your experience to help color in what it looks like for me to follow Christ. I need your experience and the community that you bring to help glorify God more. Right? Ultimately, there's, there's all kinds of different diversity. There's all kinds of different unity. And one of them needs to be across lines of single status versus married status. Right? I'm, we'll get to some of the ideas that I have. Right? But ultimately, making people feel welcomed, it's not something that I get to determine, all right, this is enough. You know, here, I've come this far. That's what I get to do. No, the one who's wronged, the one who's pushed out, the one who feels unwelcome at church should get to determine or get to have a say in what happens, what decisions we make about how to make them feel welcome. If you're being a church and you're not welcoming people, what are you doing, right? That's the whole point of this. Uh, the last thing I think we have to consider today is the various ways that our language can hurt those we are inconsiderate of, right? So someone who is celibate by choice, unmarried by choice, they may be at a very good place with where God has them. Right? They're not fragile. They're not sensitive. They're not someone who's you know, taking offense whenever we only have married people leading worship together. Or you know, some things that I, just, I still haven't even thought of. Right? Some people are at peace with that. And there's other people who aren't. Okay? So generalized statements in front of those people are always bad. If you say something like, oh, just stop looking and you'll find someone, you know, I'm annoyed at that, right? I'm annoyed at that. Let's not say generalized statements that don't help at all. Uh, let's actually try to understand their concerns, maybe pray with them, maybe have dinner with them in a way that invites and not, you know, makes it an obligation or makes it just kind of something we do just because they said to do it on church, in church on Sunday, Right? We assume that, another thing we do is we assume as, as married people that God changes us the most through our marriages, right? We will say things like, marriage is the most sanctifying thing in my life. 
As if God couldn't have transformed you from being reckless with your sex life to having just a small amount more of self-control without a spouse depending on you, okay? That's basic Christian growth, is to, to move from a place of uncontrol to self-control. And yes, God does that. He can do that through marriage. It happens that way, right? But that's not the only way that God transforms us. And I'm not saying to be quiet about your testimony, okay? I'm really not. I want to hear all of our testimonies. And I think that's the point. We're not really hearing everyone's testimony if we're focused and obsessed with marriage, okay? Uh, So how hurtful does that line of thinking sound where God transforms you most through your marriage? How hurtful does it sound to someone who's unmarried and really, really, really wants a spouse and has prayed and prayed and prayed and asked God and been on a hundred different blind dates and come to the conclusion that no one wants to give them a second glance. And then you say, I'm so happy. And you don't mourn with those who mourn, right? You don't weep with those who weep. You only want to rejoice with some of them who are rejoicing. Think of what metaphors you are using to relate to your world, to the world around you. Consider how they might be centering marriage at the expense of non-marriage, right? The other thing I want to show is this slide. Uh, we have it here. It's a saying, always a bridesmaid, never a bride. Seems harmless, right? Seems innocent enough. It's a pretty common saying, the meaning behind it being that a person is never the most important person in the room, or they're never the right exact person for the job. And so we say, ah, always a bridesmaid, never a bride. And we don't even think about how hurtful that is to someone who really wants to be a bride or someone who really wants to be a bridegroom, a husband. Let's not hurt people with our words. That's the point today, right? The point is, let's just try to be more welcoming with our words. It's a hurtful reminder that no one will make that person a bride or a bridegroom. And again, anyone you you meet can be at different stages on that journey of being at peace with where God has them. So let's not make it harder to feel welcomed by the things we say. Now we come to my role in this, right? So I am the one, me, Pastor Ben, I am the one who holds the keys as it relates to decisions about sermons, about orders of sermons, sermon series, uh, not precisely who preaches when. We, we decide as a team, but I ultimately I make the last decision, right, through prayer. Believe me, please pray for me with that. I'm, I'm learning, okay? Uh, but ultimately, I hold the keys. Since I stepped into teaching pastor role back here in April, that's been most of what makes up my job. It's a measure of influence that I believe God has given me for the purpose of leveraging it for others. Right, we, we have a privilege. The privilege exists to leverage someone else. That's, that's pretty, pretty basic. I'm really glad I know that quickly. I didn't know that quickly a few years ago. Right. Um, in this case, and on this topic, I have not made efforts. I want to say this exactly, okay? I have not made efforts to change our teaching culture to be one that addresses important parts of all our congregants' lives. I would like to change that moving forward. Not just so that everyone can be happy and feel good about what what happens on Sunday, but that we might glorify God by our unity. That we might bring God glory in this gathering of worship, right? The whole point of Sunday morning is to bring God glory. Becoming a little more like him is a 
pretty common way that we experience it. So that's why sermons are often like this, right? With, hey, go home and do this, or think this way maybe. I want to bring God glory through the, thing, through the decisions we make. And again, I don't want it to just do it so that everyone can be happy about what we preach here because that's not going to happen. Right? We're not going to please everybody. Um, adult singleness exists as a minority experience simply because the majority of us are married. So how are we looking at a minority experience and highlighting it, celebrating it, and encouraging it? So, for my part in this, I repent of the unwillingness to talk about life situations other than the one that I'm comfortable in. By our sermons, I want us to be unified and glorified and glorifying God at all times. So, ultimately, I want this sermon to do two things, right? To be a moment where I could express repentance and highlight this problem in our church culture. And two, to serve as a place where you, whether married or single, by choice or not by choice, can consider how you act in your daily life. Where you can think about the metaphors that you use to relate to the world. That's why the title today is The Bridesmaid of Christ. Right? I'm not trying to make a theological statement there. The point is just that it's a metaphor for how we may relate to Christ. And we can decide together what that means. I didn't really pick a meaning for it. Do you have an orientation that doesn't fully celebrate the good things in the lives of single people just because it's you can't really go on double dates with them? Or... They don't have kids to bring over to the campfire so they don't come, right? Like maybe have an event that is welcoming, right? So I'll end with these last verses, verses in Revelation, and I have them on, on slides. So I don't know very much about exactly how they did weddings uh, in the ancient Jewish world. So whatever the original audience was thinking and picturing when they first heard these words in Revelation, it's chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. I'm not sure what exactly they were picturing. But I know that in weddings in our time, there are almost always bridesmaids and groomsmen right next to the bride and groom celebrating the whole time. We have the honoring tradition of, of one of the bridesmaids and one of the groomsmen usually who give a speech at the, uh, at the meal afterward, the reception afterward. Not to say that all marriages go this way, but that's in, in general. That's what happens, right? So someone who's never been a bride but always a bridesmaid, still gets to eat. They still get to be part of the party, part of the celebration, enjoying, laughing at the shoe game, right? If you know about the shoe game, that's always a hit. But, <laughs> thanks. And, uh, and dancing too, right? Dancing too, having a great old time. Even though they're, they're not the bride or the groom, they're still welcome. They still get to have the celebration with us, Right? So they're participating in every bit of the celebration as much as the newlywed couple. With that, I'll read, I'll read these verses. So this is in the middle of kind of the, the end of the beginning of the end-ish, right? So this is toward the end of Revelation, right before Christ says he's about to come back. And this is the celebration, right? Verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord God, um, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fresh linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fret, fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. This is a beautiful picture, a beautiful picture of 
just how it will look at that celebration once Christ comes back to make all things right. That first night is going to be a celebration where we'll play games all night and we'll have as much food as we want and it'll be such a huge feast and a wonderful experience after a beautiful ceremony, right? Then the angel said to me, he didn't forget, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, uh, these are the true words of God. I didn't have it there. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. We look forward to that day when the wedding supper of the Lamb is happening, right? As we look forward to that day, let us also look forward to looking across the table at everyone God has invited and celebrating with them. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for the ways that you've given us to live. I thank you for your instructions that are clear in Scripture and your instructions that are either unclear or underdetermined. Lord, that you let us have agency to determine how we live. We have so much freedom in you, Lord. Like the worship songs, Lord, we thank you for the victory. We can't wait for that wedding feast. Lord, would you correct our hearts and guide our minds so that we would center experiences other than our own. That we would make welcome the people among us who aren't like the majority of the culture for whatever reason. Lord, would you bring people to us that need uh, healing and help? And then would you empower us to heal and help them. Ultimately, Lord, whatever we do, we know we do it because of you. We have our being because of you. And so, Lord, we trust you to guide people to us that we can love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.